Good evening, church. Uh, I, I go along with that. That's sad that what Dan said is always uh, ends too soon. And uh, I know that there has to be a, late, a last lesson, but I wish it wasn't mine. I wish there was more to go. But uh, um, it's, uh, it's been a great week. And I know that uh, uh, you're probably wore out, wound down. Some of you have been here every night. Uh, that is so encouraging every time I go someplace and uh, to preach for an extended period of time. I realize that people that live there and that work there are leaving their ordinary lives and schedules to come and be here. And there's always those that are here every night. Uh, there's nothing more encouraging than that. And I think Jonathan would agree with me uh, to see the same faces here uh, listening to the things that we teach. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming, uh, for inviting uh, Diane and I to come and to be here. Uh, it's really been a blessing for us, uh, we've met some new folks and been able to share some things together. Eat way too much food, um, but uh, but we're that's we're really thankful for that. Also, before I forget to do it, uh, there's another thank you that's coming uh, from not only myself but in behalf of the congregation uh, uh, at Southside in Fort Myers. Uh, this past year has been trying and difficult, a time of rebuilding. Uh, lives flipped upside down. Uh, but what we've learned in all of that uh, is that uh, brothers and sisters love brothers and sisters uh, and that it's a family of God. And when things like that take place that you never think are going to happen that do happen, that's the thing that has amazed us the most, that we've been most overwhelmed with, is the generosity of brothers and sisters who have contributed to the needs of the brethren of the people at Fort Myers. And things are better, and people have rebuilt their lives and are back on track because you're love and your concern. Um, and so thank you very much uh, for all that you did to help us and, and continue to do as you pray for us um, in the lives of the people that are rebuilding there in Fort Myers. Turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We're going to look at the very first part of Philippians, chapter 3. You have difficulty throwing something out in the trash? Some of us have more trouble with that than others. Um, I do have trouble with that. Uh, you can talk to Diane about that. She can testify to that. But there's even greater evidence, I think, uh, and that is you could just open up my garage door and just take a look. And think, <laughs> Does he ever throw anything out? In fact, when I was putting slide together, I thought probably the best thing I could, the illustration of that would be to go out and take a picture of my garage. But I know that I would never, ever be able to recover from that if I did that. <laughs> be ramifications for many years if I showed you, if I showed you a picture of my garage but sometimes we just hold on to stuff don't we I've held on to things because I thought I would they that they were important to me before at one time and I thought even though they're not important now that I will use them again that there's some use for them coming up uh, there might be a day when they would really be important to me uh, and so they would go in the garage and I'd hold on to them sometimes things are hard to get rid of because you've had them for a while uh, you know, they've always been there. And to get rid of them would indicate, you see, that uh, maybe things are changing. You don't want any of that. Even though they have no use to me now, they're still there. And I'm working on that. One of the most impressive, I think, before and after images in the scriptures is one that we've referenced some already. And that's by the writer of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul. We know about Paul. He had not always been Paul. At one time, he was Saul. And he was an enemy of Christ. He was one who stood against that which he now uh, recognized as the very core of his life. 
He sought to destroy the followers of Christ, and now he was making followers of Christ and building them up. What Saul once despised, Paul now treasured. What Saul viewed one time as valuable, Paul was willing to throw away. So there was this change. There was this shifting of perspective, a changing of values that's inherent within looking at the life of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. In Philippians chapter 3, I want to read some, some passages to, with, with us here as we think about this that maybe reflect to us that particular change. The idea here that Paul would reevaluate the things of his life and make consistent changes throughout his life that would reflect that, I think is something we need to look at in our own lives. What does God expect of me? One thing he expects of me is he expects, of me, he expects me to be able to reevaluate the things of my life as I become a Christian and throw out things of the past so that I might gain the things that he provides for me. In Philippians chapter 3, in verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship God by the Spirit of, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. For whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. and Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may gain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had enemies. Those enemies many times, you see, would accuse him of turning his back on the things that God had revealed, God had provided for him, and that they considered to be the utmost credentials and blessings of life. That Paul was one who despised the law. That Paul was one who who you see who did not cherish and taught against the very things that typified and characterized God's people. The majority of the enemies of Paul and the gospel that he preached were fellow Jews. Who taught that if one was going to be right before God, particularly the Gentiles, they had to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. They identified themselves, interestingly enough, as the circumcision. And Paul opposed them. Sometimes he opposed them very vehemently, even as it's recorded in the scriptures. He warns them here, he warns the Philippian Christians against the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilation. Those are the folks that we just described. They are the enemies of Paul. In denying, you see, the name circumcision that they had taken for themselves, the false teachers, Paul turns around and identifies the Christians as the real circumcision. There's several sermons, I think, in that very te- that, that, that very uh, element of Paul's uh, use of that term in the scriptures. 
They had, but Christians had put off the body of sin through the circumcision of the heart. And so Paul was unafraid to take that term that even his enemies had used to identify themselves and so and say, no, we are the true circumcision. And he says in that, the true circumcision, were character, those truly who were circumcised of the heart, were characterized by three things that distinguish them from the false teachers. One is that they worship God in the spirit from the heart, not just outwardly through rituals. Secondly, they rejoice in Christ Jesus because he is the one who's interceded for him. They put all their confidence in him. And so thirdly, they have no confidence in the flesh. They don't put no value on those things that are of a physical nature, but rather those things that come only from Christ. Now, Paul was using the term flesh here, I think, to refer to outward designations, not just the aspect of whether or not it involved the physical body, but those Outward designations that the Jews held on to so clearly as being that which separated them from those that are around them that they've considered to be outside of Christ or without or outside of God. Paul looks at himself and he's going to make a point. And I say all of that to get us to recognize that Paul, in making the point he's going to make that we're going to focus on tonight, sets himself up as an image for us to view. He, in essence, is going to tell us and tell the Philippians here that they have to be willing to give things up and to throw things out of their life in order to be Christians. And so he says, look at me. Look at me. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, he says, I am more so. Now, the apostle often anticipates his opponent's arguments, and because of that, then he is, through the power of the inspiration here, is able to head them off of the past and present, I think, Arguments that are unanswerable to them. Some would argue in the context of writing to the Philippian church that those folks couldn't really understand what Paul was getting ready to say about what they needed to give up because they had difficulty maybe as Gentiles understanding the religious heritage of the Jews. Maybe that's so. Could they really understand, you see, to dismiss something that they had never really possessed? But to be a Jew... To be someone, you see, who understood the covenants, the promises of God, and understood this aspect of the rich Jewish heritage. They could fully understand if they understood that, what had happened in Paul's own life in terms of his conversion. Paul said elsewhere, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. So to enhance the truth of what he's going to say here, he presents what we might think about as being his resume. This is Paul's credentials as a Jew. He lists seven items that he once held in high esteem in his life that really defined who he was before God, that ultimately he was willing to give up, to throw out. I think that if I understand the terminology here, that the image Paul's presenting here is what you might think of as an accounting image or the idea of a ledger, someone you see who's going, who, who's looking at the assets, you see the profit that he has on the other side are the liabilities or that which you see is of no gain, that which you see is a debit in his account. And so Paul's going to start by telling us here what's on positive side from the standpoint of being a Jew. How much of a Jew was Paul, so to speak? Well, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. He starts with circumcision. That's sort of the aspect 
in the mind of his enemies that, that represented all of these things that were the physical credentials that they valued so much. He starts with circumcision, and literally in the Greek he says, with respect to circumcision, I'm an eight-dayer, meaning I was circumcised strictly according to the law. I did, was not circumcised as an adult. I, wasn't, I didn't come to God as a proselyte circumcised later on, such, such as ones as Timothy and others. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. He was born a Jew from Jewish parents. Again, he was not a proselyte. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was a tribe of rank and honor. Among the Jews, Benjamin was the last son of Jacob, the only son born in the promised land. When the land was divided, Jerusalem was included in Benjamin's territory. And along with Judah, it was the only tribe that remained loyal to the house of David, the time of division of the kingdom. By Paul's day, many Jews did not know what tribe they were from or their tribal heritage. Intermarriage during the years of exile had blurred those lines. It was difficult maybe for an ordinary Jew to know. But Paul's family had remained pure Benjamites and could say with all confidence, we know where we came from. We have this heritage of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably what Paul is presenting there is not just that he was descended from Hebrew parents. He didn't have any Gentiles in his lineage, but rather that the, the, that he was strictly maintained his family's traditional uh, tr- uh, traditional heritage through the law itself and the keeping of the law. Although Paul was bar- born in Tarsus, the city of Asia Minor, and not in Israel, his family had retained. The traditions of the Jews had not been Hellenized by Greek culture. And so he had retained the language of the Jews and the customs there. When Paul defended himself in Jerusalem, he stated, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God. So the couple times when Paul reminds his audience, I'm not just an ordinary Jew. You see, I've held on to these things that mean so much to you guys as he talks to his enemies or even as he talks to the common Jew. He says concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strictest of the Jewish religion. They were devoted to law keeping above all others. Paul says, I was one of those. He says concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Now, that may be somewhat perplexing here. What does he mean by that? The Jews valued zeal. Or passion in their religion, religious virtue, the aspect of holding on to the things of God and getting rid of the things that don't belong to God, that belong to the pagans. And it was viewed from two sides. You love some things and you hate the other. So to be zealous is to love God and to hate what offends him. And so Paul could look at what he'd done in the past and said, this is certainly evidence that I've been zealous because I was zealous for God because I persecuted the church. Those he considered, you see, to be enemies of God, he was willing to go as far as to try to put them to death. It wasn't just that he didn't like them. He would go to war against them. So Paul says, look at my passion, my zeal. Paul was sincere. There's a point to be seen in that. Paul was sincere, but he was wrong. It's possible to be sincere and to be wrong. And those zealousness, and uh, you see, and... Uh, being sincere, sincerity and honesty are very valuable. In fact, they're intrinsically valuable in our Christian life. We have to be careful here that we don't put that in the place ultimately of what is truth. Religious zeal guarantees us nothing. Devout people can be absolutely wrong. Paul stands as a clear example of that. And then he says, concerning righteousness, 
which is in the law, I am blameless. I'm convinced that Paul's using the term law here to include not just the Old Testament scriptures, but the Jewish traditions that surrounded it, or what his audience would have recognized, particularly among the Jews, as being the traditions that, that were included in the law. And Paul says, I've kept them. Concerning those, there's no one who can stand up and say, Paul, you don't really value law. To those who knew him, Paul was a model Jew who was very passionate and concerned about following what God would have him to do and being obedient. So human judgment could find no fault in him. And so Paul gives this resume. For what purpose? So that no doubt those in Philippi and even you and I can have a better understanding of where he stood in the eyes of others and how valuable what he had and what he possessed would have been not only to himself, but to others around him and how they would have recognized that Paul's really up there. And so at verse 7 and 8, he flips open the ledger. <clears throat> and he says, but all of these things being true, he follows that by saying, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake <clears throat> of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. <clears throat> Paul took those things on the positive side of the ledger where every Jew would have put him where even religious people would have seen them as being valuable things that Paul had been able to acquire in his life. Credentials themselves. He took all of those things on the positive side of the ledger and he moved them over and said, I'm counting them now as liabilities. They are loss. His game has switched around. He tells us that he's willing to renounce these things in order to place his confidence in Christ alone. The thing I think I would need to recognize is that this is a choice by Paul. There's no one forces him into this transaction, this changing of value systems. Paul's come to recognize that these things that he valued so much are to be discounted, that they no longer are valuable like he thought that they were, and that they were to be set aside. They were to be thrown in the garbage, so to speak. He recognizes that by his relationship, or the beginning of his relationship, and the experience of his relationship with Jesus Christ. So he renounces it all because he has to. Is that right? Is that what he's saying here? That Paul's saying, I renounce all these things, I count them as loss because I must renounce them. I think that's exactly the point. That he has to throw them out. In order to put his confidence in Christ. He has to throw them out in order to, you see, know Jesus and come to understand him and to gain Christ. And ultimately, as he says, to gain even to the point of the resurrection from the dead. And so he says here, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Now, what would change Paul's value system so radically? Well, it says he came, that he came to know Jesus. He counted these things as loss. For the sake of Christ. The language here is, I think, is interesting here, how Paul expresses it. There's almost a progression to what he says. Maybe we can relate to this in some ways. Paul utilizes the perfect tense verb in verse 7. He says, I counted these things as loss in the past. And in the use of that terminology, Paul was literally saying, I counted these things as lost in the past and still now consider them lost for the sake of Christ. 
Perfect tense was the aspect of something that started, you see, and then goes on. Beyond, beyond that point, you see, further on. It stretches from the moment of his conversion to the time in which he's writing the epistles and says, I counted these things for loss in the past, and now I continue to count them for the sake of Christ the lost. You know what that tells me? It tells me that Paul's saying that I have no regrets. I turned away from these things in the past, the time when they were very valuable to me, and they seemingly, you see, they defined who I was. I've turned away from those things, and I continue turn away from them without any regrets. And then he continues in verse 8 with a present tense verb when he says, I count, elaborating his present or current reckoning. I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. I do that even now. We might notice that the contrast between whatever I had in verse 7 and then the all things in verse 8. It's almost as though Paul is saying, Back then, when I looked at the, what was on the ledger side, I was willing to take all of that and say, this is not any more value to me anymore. I'm going to serve Christ. And then as time went on, there were other things that came up. So now it's not just what I had, but now it's all things have been counted as lost before God. And so he's moved everything on the other side of the ledger. He says in this, I have suffered the loss. Of all things. Was it easy? Was it just a mental transaction? Or was the decision to follow Christ more than just academic, more than just theoretical? In his conversion to Christ, he had to move away from and renounce those things that stood in the way. And in the process, he went about to lose even more things, ultimately, they may have valued. It's one thing to say that, yeah, I'll give it all up, but it's another to actually experience the loss. And go through the loss and then say, I do not regret it. I will not go back. To make that choice over and over and over again. You and I have known folks that made that choice initially and says, I'm going to give it all up. But then as time went on, they were unwilling to give up. Sometimes the things that came later on and they turned back. So Demas forsook Paul because he loved the present world. But Paul says, I counted them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. One of the striking elements of Paul's words here is his use of the Greek word uh, skubalon, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a word that's used to describe what is thrown out of the dogs. It's not a very pretty word. It's something that you use to describe what you scrape off the plate and you give it to the pup. Or you throw it in the garbage can. The King James uses the word dung, excrement. Hard to think of something more worthless than that, huh? The picture here, I believe, is of total renunciation. We went to a place this week to eat called Leftovers. (laughs) And I thought, am I really going to find something I like here? (laughs) Leftovers. It was very good. But when when I heard the name, I thought, everybody loves leftovers, right? Maybe that's why they chose the name. Because I like leftovers. You like taking something home? The idea of, okay, I'm going to get a meal, but then I'm going to save a little for later on. But maybe you go to a restaurant. I've never been to one of those. Maybe they are. Maybe they go down and say, look, you can eat here, but you can't take it out. We don't give those little baskets away, those little trays you put it on to take it home. You got to eat it all here, and then it's done. And they take it off your plate. You left half of it there, and they take it away, and they got to throw it away, and you're going, oh, no, no, no. 
I was going to eat that for lunch. No. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Paul doesn't agonize to have it back. He gives those things up. His standing in the Jewish community, his ability to go in the synagogue and teach whatever and be esteemed as a rabbi of great importance. Even his ability to go back into the city that belonged to God without the fear of his own life from his own people. He renounced it all. So on the way back to Jerusalem that last time, you remember, he says, I'm not afraid to go back there. I'll die for God there. Why? Because it didn't matter to him anymore what those folks thought about his credentials. He'd given that all up. But to recognize that I must give all those things up in an unregretting way, it's difficult from a damp floor of a dungeon. Do you regret what you have to give up to be a child of God? Were you called to sacrifice much when you came into the kingdom of God? If you suffered a loss for your faith now, would you count it as rubbish to be thrown out? Not very many years ago, I held a meeting and I met a lady there who I stayed with their family. I met a lady there that's whose, whose image in life, though we haven't kept up with each other, I think has impressed me ever since. She came from a Hindu background and Maylene had given up a great deal to become a Christian. She'd grown up in a totally different, distinct religion the religion of her family's tradition for years and generations. And she was renounced by her family when she chose Christ. So much so that there was no phone calls and there were no letters and there was no getting together again. It was, if you go this way, that's it. That was it. And she would tell her story and she would smile to me about choosing Jesus. And I thought, could I do that? Would I do that? And then there's young Daniel who came and was converted over a period of time at Southside that went back to serve his family in Uganda to preach the gospel in a city filled with the religion of Islam where his neighbors and his friends of a totally different perspective ostracized him because he spoke about Christ and ultimately accused him of crimes he'd never committed to the point that he had to flee from his family and leave his country to go somewhere else because his community would no longer accept him being there. He went smiling and talking about Jesus and still talks about Jesus. Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all of these things. A few years back, a decorated and celebrated fire chief for the city of Atlanta, Kevin Cochran, Kelvin Cochran, was fired from his job. Maybe you remember reading about this. He wrote a Bible workbook about family as God designed it. He spoke about the sin of homosexuality as well as other sexual sins such as premarital sexual relationships before marriage. And he put that in the book to teach young people and others about the importance of that, what God had taught. He lost his job. He appealed to get his job back. The appeal was denied. He had worked all his life to get where he was and had served the city of Atlanta for decades. He had a considerable resume. But he lost it all because he taught the truth. And he preached the truth. If you suffered that kind of loss, 
Would you regret it? Would you count it as rubbish? Would you turn and walk away without retreat? Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all of these valuable assets in order to gain something. Well, what was it? What would you say Paul would gain by this? If you were in this position, what was there to be gained by this? We might expect Paul to say that he would gain peace of mind, self-respect, a clear conscience, maybe even a home in heaven when you die. We all look to that and recognize that that is a motivation for doing what is right and for sacrificing. But what was the the gain that Paul addresses here? I give all of these things up, he says, that I might gain Christ. That I might gain Christ. That enough? Is that enough? Everything else is rubbish. When compared to what? More accurately, when compared to whom? Everything else is rubbish when compared to Christ. Many Christians, I think, anticipate, as we always do, a time of joy later on in heaven. They look for what God's going to give them later on, and we need to do that. That's a hope, a living hope that we have, that we will be with God in eternity. But the other side of that is some of the folks that have that very vivid picture and anticipation of heaven are absolutely miserable here. Isn't that sad? The folks that could be so positive that God was going to provide for them something that was a great gain later on would fail to see the gain of knowing Jesus right now. Paul says that I might gain Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, Paul wasn't talking about knowing Christ Jesus on down the line. He was talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus right now. He would toss all of this away because he's come to know what it means to know Jesus. He calls it in the New King James Version, the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. How important it is to have a relationship with Christ now. And this is not just an intellectual knowledge about who Jesus was. Saul of Tarsus knew who Jesus claimed claimed to be. I believe that what he's talking about here is not just intellectual knowledge, but rather the aspect of the value of coming to experience, to know what it means to serve Christ, to understand what it means to have Jesus as the one whom I serve, my Lord, my Master, my King. It's interesting to note that the central question of Saul, after he saw the light, so to speak, in on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Lord, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. If I understand right, kicking against the goads was not an intellectual struggle. Rather, it was a struggle of the will. It wasn't just a matter that Paul... The Saul of Tarsus needed to come to know intellectually who Jesus was. He needed to come to the point where he would submit to the will of Jesus as his king. And that once he came to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ, that's what it meant for him to come to know. The excellence of coming to know Jesus Christ as his Lord in Christ, as one who was over him and would provide for him. That made everything else in life worthless in comparison. What does Paul gain? Well, he enunciates a few things here, I think, that are uh, important for us to see. In verses 9 through 11, he says here, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Maybe there's a transition from gaining Christ initially that he talks about here in conversion to being found in him on down the line so that he will he will get Christ now and then he will continue to be with Christ and be found in him. Paul uses the term in Christ and in him throughout his writings to talk about this aspect of relationship or position of, of a person being saved before God. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what I gain when I'm willing to give everything else up for him. To be found in him. How's that possible? It's possible only by having a righteousness that comes from God. And not a righteousness that comes from my own achievements. It doesn't come through all of that other stuff that Paul mentioned before that people valued so much. It comes through putting my faith in Christ alone. And Paul came to recognize that. That he would gain a righteousness that was far superior to any sense of righteousness that those around him would account as being important. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's a real value to that, isn't there? Have you ever been in a situation where you taught somebody that from the gospel who maybe had never seen it before? Maybe they labored very difficultly over the, from this perspective that they thought they had to be perfect to be saved. They had to do everything right to get to heaven. And they placed all of that confidence in themselves and they were disappointed over and over and over again and had no joy in their life. And you open the scriptures and explain to them, look, this is not about what you and I do. It's about what God has done. It doesn't diminish the importance and the absolute essentiality of obedience, but salvation, righteousness, comes through faith in putting my trust in Jesus Christ. And the fact that by the righteousness that I have will not be through what I do, but through the forgiveness of God. And they lighten up. (laughs) I've seen that, I think. And they would recognize that that's a truth for which I will have no regrets. That I might know him, the power of his resurrection... Paul experienced Christ's resurrection powers in more than one way. It was the power that had saved him initially when he was buried with Jesus in baptism and rose to walk in the newness of life, sharing in the power of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5, he said Colossians chapter 2, he talks about putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, Paul taught. So Paul experienced the power of the resurrection Initially, when he came to Christ and the forgiveness of his sins, but I would suggest to you that throughout Paul's life and our life as well, that we experience the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through sanctification. It's the power of Jesus' resurrection that gives us new life over and over and over again in our lives and ultimately creates with us the power to defeat temptation in the trials of our life when we're tempted. It's not my power and it's not yours. The power of this evidence and the fact that Jesus came forth from the grave. So he ever lives to make intercession for me. And then he says, that I might gain him, I might know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Is that what you want? Is that what you're striving for? Is to share in the sufferings of Christ. 
When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we share in his sufferings. We share in the promise of glory that follows that. And so Peter says, don't be surprised when these things come upon you. The painful trial that you are experiencing as though something strange has happened to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says that if we are heirs, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. So Paul was willing to throw it all out, all the things he had put great deal of value before in his life so that he might suffer for Jesus Christ. What an enormous transaction. And then he says, being conformed even to his death. You want to be like Jesus? Well, sure. Well, what part of Jesus' life would you most like to imitate in your life? To be a great teacher, a wise one like Jesus, to bring people in, even to exhibit love to others and kindness as Jesus did, to be a compassionate person. All of those things are things that we learn and that we get from Jesus and that we can share with him as we grow to be like him. But Paul, and talk about the aspect of what he is going to gain by giving up all the things in his life is so that I can die like Jesus, that I might be conformed to his death. I want to be like Jesus when he's hanging on the cross, when he's dying. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. A resurrection to eternal life. I find these words very compelling. Because I find myself many times in my life recognizing not only am I not willing to give up the things that might stand in my way to be a better person in Christ. But they don't truly understand the value of the things that God has placed before me to gain in that transaction. The experience of knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and to be conformed into his death and the great blessing of being able, having the opportunity to suffer for him. What's your goal? To gain Christ? To be found in him? To have a righteousness come through faith and not through your own efforts or achievements? To suffer with him? To be obedient even to the point of death? And in the end... To attain to the resurrection, to eternal life. I hope that's it. I hope that's what you want. What the apostle said he gained. But we have to notice what he gave up. We have to be able to fully appreciate this aspect of what it means to count all things for loss. It's what we started out talking about, I think, in the very beginning of our study together. To live as Christ. To die as gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you're not a child of God, it's with great humility that we point you to not only the example of Paul the Apostle that we've studied tonight, but more, even more clearly, the example of humility of your Lord Jesus Christ and the great love that he exhibited on the cross. Let the love of Jesus for you draw you to him. Come with a clear willingness and desire to set everything else aside and to serve him alone. And through the faith that you have and the power of his resurrection that you'll be willing to repent of your sins, confess him as Lord of your life, and be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. The power that rests, that resides in that particular transaction is the power of Jesus' resurrection. You must be buried with him so that you can rise with him. Maybe we can help you do that. Going to stand and sing a song of invitation, and we invite you to come. Thank you very much.